Freedom HealthWorks is the direct primary care accelerator. We help doctors across the country start fresh in direct primary care. With Freedom HealthWorks, you work with a team, not a checklist. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com and together we can achieve true freedom in direct care. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This, of course, is the podcast that likes to separate health insurance and show that it does not equal health care. Today, a, uh, well, I find all the episodes very interesting, very fascinating, learning about the alternate ways to practice medicine and experience medicine from the consumer side and the patient side. But today is a, a discussion about maintenance of certification. And you'll probably see a lot of physicians out there who say that they are certified, board certified. And then you see a lot of physicians who are not. And so we wanted to dispel, dispel some of the myths around this process, what it is, what it means, and really what's the difference between a certified and a non-certified physician, as well as different types of certification out there, because they're not all the same. And with us today is Dr. Wes Fisher. He's a cardiac electrophysiologist and associate clinical professor of medicine at the University of Chicago and co-founder of Practicing Physicians of America. And we invited him on the show because he's done a ton of research and has been very active in that certification process, asking all the right questions. And he's here today to present us with what he's learned and how he's making medicine better and easier for physicians, either earn those certifications or show them that there's a completely different way to go about this that still shows that they are good doctors and competent practitioners. Dr. Fisher, welcome to Healthcare Americana. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Chris. It's nice to be here. Let's start off with what you're doing right now with your organization, Practicing Physicians of America. Let's get some background on that, what you guys are doing and why you're doing it. Well, it, it, our, our story is, uh, takes a long arc but I'll try to summarize it very succinctly. We, uh, Practicing Physicians of America, basically was uh, founded in 2017 uh, by a group of six of, of us who got together because we had been uh, researching and uh, studying uh, some of the problems with our current certification process and credentialing process uh, in the United States. And... Uh, those uh, credentialing processes have, have begun to impede uh, the care of patients. Uh, they interrupt uh, uh, our uh, care of those patients and um, have become increasingly uh, expensive for physicians to partake in, both in time away from their practices and also uh, financially. So because of those concerns, a group of us got together because we're actually practicing doctors. We, none of us are paid for doing what we do. Uh, we, this is an entirely voluntary effort that we have. All of the work that we do with Practicing Physicians of America is uh, uh, on our own time um, and has to be squeezed in between clinical work, which uh, obviously can, if you're not a full-time bureaucrat, it's very difficult. Uh, to uh, go before state licensure boards, to, to go before uh, meetings, to go down and uh, talk before uh, medical societies about this issue. Uh, but uh, social media has helped us uh, in, in our uh, many of our efforts. And we've learned a lot about uh, the good, bad, and ugly of this uh, board certification process, which has changed over the years uh, from its original inception in 1936. 
And the story is a long one, but it is one that is not too uncommon uh, when you have organizations that are independent and dependent on physician fees to survive and then have other political and personal agendas that they want to accomplish uh, that are outside the purview really of the care of patients. And probably the biggest thing that's happened, of course, uh, was in 2010, the signing of the Affordable Care Act, which changed really the entire landscape of medicine. And uh, uh, the American Medical Association, of course, leapt on board with that uh, passage. And, and we, should be, we should acknowledge that there are uh, issues with uh, board certification and with uh, medicine that people do need to get care and uh, it is expensive and, and we do need to reach out to other people. But for the guys on the front line who are really caring for patients, uh, this ends up being uh, a concern that uh, medicine is, is uh, struggling right now to meet those demands. We see that with the coronavirus problem. Um, at the same time, we're trying to forward our practices without having interruption. We've got not enough doctors in America. Uh, so Practicing Physicians of America was started to really uh, speak to the issues that working physicians have, not those in bureaucratic ivory towers. So we're looking at something, a program that came in from the 30s, and I'm talking specifically about the certification aspect of it. What were those early days like in medicine before the American Board of Medical Specialties, or ABMS, before they decided, you know, we need to test everybody when they're coming out of residency? What was life like from a physician before and after that decision was made? Well, let's, let's be honest here. Not all medical schools were that great, but physicians do not need board certification to hold a medical license in the United States. Uh, it is not a requirement uh, to hold an MD degree that is granted by uh, the medical schools in the United States. The Graduate Medical USGMLE is a group of folks who certify the medical education process in America uh, along with the National Board of Medical Examiners. Uh, they are people who uh, make sure those medical schools are of adequate quality and uh, have content and have rules and regulations for what uh, they have to do in order to get a, a physician to achieve an MD degree. Where the board certification issue came in is actually uh, postgraduate medical education when people decide to subspecialize in a particular field. And the American Medical Association way back in the 1930s recognized that there was no real way to assess if a person really knew their stuff in a particular subspecialty field. And so they created uh, the American Board of Medical Specialties in 1933 uh, to kind of uh, collect all these uh, disparate subspecialty groups. And then the American Board of Internal Medicine was, the, was uh, after the American Board of Ophthalmology, was one of the earlier organizations that decided to create this uh, certificate that you could earn. And it was a lifetime certificate, one that you could carry forever. Um, it was much like the bar exam for a lawyer. And it proved that you knew your stuff in that particular subspecialty and you can go on and practice medicine. And everything was fine up until in 1975, uh, the leadership of the American Board of Internal Medicine decided uh, because they uh, had created this uh, system and had grown more and more subspecialties to help generate more and more revenue for their organization. And also they had more specialties in medicine. 
that they should pay their uh, officers um, and not have to work, uh, not have to see patients and have them purely bureaucratically um, elected. Uh, they're self-appointed by the organization itself. Physicians don't vote on who gets to sit there. Um, so it's a, a non-democratic private organization that's a nonprofit. And uh, so this is how they, in order to generate revenue, they needed to figure out a way to uh, change their rules. And so what ended up happening around 75, they began testing uh, advanced board certification programs that were in completely voluntary so that they, so that doctors could feel proud that they really knew their stuff, not just kind of knew their stuff, but really, really knew their stuff. And uh, they put out these tests and said, okay, sign up for them. And they were pretty expensive. And because doctors were already board certified and they said, well, there's no real value in this extra testing, uh, we would like to just uh, maybe forego that. And so they didn't sign up and they had a declining enrollment for the voluntary uh, testing that was uh, needed to pay these officers salaries. So in 1986, uh, they tested critical care medicine and decided uh, they, they, they changed the rules on them. And then in 1988, for geriatric medicine, they changed the rules. And then pretty soon for all uh, 20 subspecialties of the American Board of Internal Medicine, they went ahead and made repeat testing on an ongoing basis, lifetime ongoing basis. Uh, they made board certification time limited from 1990 on. So for every subspecialty, uh, people were caught and they had to pay and had to retest in order to maintain their board certification. So that repeated testing was later trademarked by the American Board of Medical Specialties as maintenance of certification. So what it is, is repeated testing at recurrent intervals for the lifetime of a physician in order to, so that they can practice. And over what? the years, yeah, I'm sorry. Go yeah, ahead. no, it just spiking curiosity there. So we go from something that in the 30s, you know, it, it, uh, you admitted that, hey, not all medical schools were really great. Um, I'm not going to say they were still, still emphasizing leeches or anything like that. But you have these tests and these standards and certifications coming out to show, okay, this person went to this school and this school is producing physicians that meet these requirements. They know their stuff. And it sounds like as the decades progressed, a lot of greed came into it. Somebody said, well, wait a minute, this could be, this could be a big time thing. As we continue to get more people on board, they're really controlling the certification market and they built themselves a nice little monopoly. I think that's exactly correct. I think that, um, we should understand that specialty medicine was a guild, really, and it, it was uh, created as a guild, uh, a club, if you will, for physicians to be able to, uh, and really what board certification, when I started medicine way back in the day, it was a little more than a marketing accolade that you could hang, hang your shingle and say, I'm board certified, come to see me because I know my stuff. And so that's really all it is, to be honest with you. There's no proof uh, ever that uh, in prospective randomized ways like we like to have that board certification truly improves the quality of a physician. And, you know, quality is a funny thing. How do you, how do you determine what a quality physician? You could have the most gruff neurosurgeon who is the nastiest person in the world, but has technical skills that are impeccable and never has a patient death. That person 
Most people say, you know what? I don't mind if he's a knucklehead. The guy does good surgery and he saves my life and he's a great neurosurgeon. Whereas you may have other people who look at that person and say, you know, he's so kind and sweet and gentle and I, I really like his personality. So that's a, that's a quality physician. So how do you define quality? Well, it's very subjective and it's subjective based on a lot of different metrics. So how do you uh, determine that? Well, the way you do it is you, you market your testing to uh, hospitals and to insurance companies. And you basically say, hey, this is the best thing since slide thread. Uh, you're gonna know a real good doctor by if they can pass a test as opposed to how long they've been practicing medicine, how many cases they've done, how many things have they done, what their uh, practice environment. You know, every doctor works in a different practice environment. They might work in a tiny clinic. They might work in a large corporate healthcare system. They may be in private practice. How are the boards ever going to really be able to define what a quality physician is? And that kind of circumstance is very difficult to do. Is, so the benefit uh, yet, they've marketed it. Yeah, so it, it, I'm always amazed by some some brilliant marketing schemes out there. One, I always give kudos to to Medicare for marketing themselves as the gold standard of health insurance plans when it's just a bare minimum. But people believe that hey, once I'm 65, I'm on Easy Street now, and, and government right. pays my way. This is another case here. What what are the pros to being certified from a physician standpoint? Is it just a resume builder? It now has become, because of this marketing, that, that really, it now is a requirement to practice medicine in the United States. Unless you're board certified, and that's the monopoly part of this, right? Unless you're board certified, you can't hold hospital privileges anymore. Unless you're board certified, you can't get malpractice insurance from most of the major carriers. Unless you're board certified, you can't hope to really uh, get employed at, at, a, at a bunch of different settings. And so what it's become basically is a test that is a repeated test, a pay-to-play scheme, if you will. If you don't participate, you can't practice medicine. And for many people, this now has been damaging because they were board certified at one time, but all of a sudden the rug's been pulled out from under them because they didn't do the testing that was required on a repeated basis. And somehow this agency, the American Board of Mental Medicine and American Board of Medical Specialties and all their other specialty member boards, there's different board for psychiatry and neurology and all these other things. Those groups are very comfortable with uh, just saying, you know, shucks, you didn't pass your test and pay your fees. You have to do both. You can pass your test, but if you don't pay your fees, you also can't practice medicine, okay? And we have a lot of examples of people who have done all of the testing that they required but refuse to pay their fees. And insurance companies go to their patients and say, I'm sorry, this person's no longer on our panel. Boom. Uh, you need to go find another doctor. And that happened to uh, Dr. Meg Edison out of Michigan. She was a pediatrician. She and I have been trying to, to fix this problem for years. And the interesting thing is, and this is the best part of it all, is that older physicians certified before 1990, and ironically, those people who are probably in most in need of repeated testing because they've been out of the latest and greatest updates in medicine, they're grandfathered. They don't have to do this. So let that sink in. We have discrimination going against the younger, more female, more likely people of color now in medicine, whereas the old white guard, male white guard, has exempted themselves from these repeated payments on a recurrent basis. And this is something that um, we found absolutely uh, mind-boggling, that they would hold this double standard. It's very 
the hypocrisy is, is uh, incredible. And yet that rule still exists today that older people who board certified before 1990 don't have to participate in maintenance of certification. And maintenance of certification makes more money for these boards. If you add up all the boards, it is a $1 billion a year market that they've created for themselves. Wow. And they're involved in interstate commerce. They're, they're doing this uh, in all 50 states and U.S. territories. And guess what? No other country in the world has to do this. Mm-hmm. No, nobody. So to say that it's the only thing that's going to determine a quality physician is just false. It's false. Mm-hmm. I always like, uh, from a personal and a business standpoint, I always like that question of what is quality healthcare? What is quality medical care more specifically? Right. And you have, like you said, it's very subjective. It, it's a different answer for everybody, yet the Q word is, you, is just thrown around in medicine so liberally that it, it's kind of, again, it's kind of mind boggling because one hospital system has a different definition of quality then one physician has a different definition of quality, like you said before. And a lot of times that definition is just dictated to a patient or dictated to a doctor or dictated to a hospital system. And I loved your example before, like, why are we measuring whether this doctor is really good at what he does, but that doesn't win any personality contests. You're not going to win any beauty pageants doing that. And you're probably gonna get some bad reviews yet that person is alive to leave a review. So it, it, it's almost like we need different types of ways to, I don't have the answer for this one, but how do we measure good quality care? How do we measure somebody who, if the certification process went away, let's, let's start there. You know, what are your thoughts on how do we measure whether a physician is going to be a great physician and the best choice for me as a patient? One of the problems with all of this maintenance of certification, they, and doctors are not adverse to, I mean, we, we've been doing a lifetime learning all our lives. We uh, very much believe that people need to keep up and be able to keep up with their practice. And in fact, before this maintenance of certification thing happened and still continues today, uh, all physicians are required by their states to participate in continuing medical education. And interestingly enough, that continuing medical education is superseded now by maintenance of certification because if you don't do maintenance of certification, you can't practice. Well, if you don't do CME, you can't practice in, in each state. And, and these specialty boards have gone to the state medical boards and are trying to infiltrate there to say, hey, look, use our credential. When in fact, it is nothing more than a money-making scheme for the American Board of Internal Medicine to pay their officers. And those officers are paid extraordinary sums uh, the uh, president and CEO of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. Now, that's, a, that's not an invasive surgical subspecialty, okay? That individual made $2.8 million in a single year. $2.8 million? $2.8 million. Not seeing patients, no. just okay. administering. No, no. And, and got a $1.9 million bonus in 2018. Wow. Now, I don't know what his bonus was for, but man, I tell you, if I could get that job, I'd love to do it. You know, I mean, why not? <laughs> And, and this is the problem. This is unjust enrichment for a nonprofit board. And that's how bad this has gotten. These guys are, are making money hand over fist. Uh, it, in fact, it's a $1 billion business. And uh, these are nonprofits. These are guys who aren't supposed to do it. And I got involved um, through uh, my third recertification cycle. I have to, because I got caught. I'm grandfathered for internal medicine, something I don't really do much anymore. But I'm board certified in internal medicine the rest of my life. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. But in cardiology and cardiac electrophysiology, I got caught in the trap created by the American Board of Internal Medicine, which is why I kind of have this little bug up my, you know, uh, in my ear that I want to try to fix this for our specialty. And so I decided to research where all this money was going after the third time I had to do it. And I found that they, uh, the American Board of Internal Medicine, with whom I have to recredential in both cardiac and cardiac electrophysiology, which is extremely expensive, probably is $10,000 at least every 10 years. That's uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not an inconsequential. By the time you get done doing your time off from work, it's probably more than that, to be honest with you. Some people estimate that the average amount to recertify every 10 years costs physicians $23,000. And that's in a peer-reviewed journal in the uh, Annals of Internal Medicine. $23,000 every 10 years that physicians are paying, both in direct and indirect costs. That is the cost of the, you know, taking the test and also traveling to the test center, leaving your practice, all those things. Th- that all adds up into the cost of what a physician has to do. And that was in 2015 dollars. So it's even more expensive now way more expensive. So we're looking at uh, a racket, basically, and we have a certification racket, education, physician education racket that is making a lot of money and uh, is really unnecessary. It's never been proven to improve patient care, safety, or quality. So here we are. When you're doing your investigations and, and asking all these questions, I mean, I'm sure you pissed off a lot of people by turning over some of these stones. Where did that $1 billion go? You said they're a $1 billion company um, or organization, excuse me. Where's that money going? And did you ever run into the, the argument that, hey, we're, we're spending a lot of resources to make sure that our, uh, our constituents, our physicians are keeping up with the latest and greatest in medical care? Because that's really the only argument I can see them making as for the recurring testing other than a money issue. Well, let, let me back up just a little bit. Uh, it's, a, it's a very complicated, there's a lot of people involved in this. It's not just the American Board of Internal Medicine. They, they probably represent about 59 to $60 million of that $1 billion a year. But when you add up all the specialty boards, you're looking at a $1 billion mm-hmm. pot of cash. Sure. Okay. So all of these boards, all these specialty boards are making money off the deal. Some of them make more than others, okay? But interestingly, the ones that are the most lucrative are those that uh, affect those who are least capable of making large sums of money in medicine, which is usually the case. There are so many pediatricians, so many family practice doctors, so many internists. Uh, they far eclipse many of the other subspecialties. They don't, and they pay significant amounts of money. Uh, and out of that, they're the major holders. So the American Board of Internal Medicine represents about 200,000 physicians in the United States. And that's about one quarter of all the U.S. physicians that there are. And so that's why, you know, I'm kind of focusing on them. Sure. But, but when you put all these other groups together, uh, that's where you, you get that $1 billion. Um, getting back to your question, I think that, um, you know, where do they use this money? Well, they use it to buy things for themselves like condominiums and real estate purchases. Um, the American Board of Internal Medicine bought a $2.3 million condominium complete with a chauffeur-driven Mercedes S-Class town car for themselves uh, in 2007. And those, those monies actually were uh, covertly funneled from our testing fees uh, to a, a shadow organization that they made for themselves called the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, ABIM Foundation. Um, and that was part of the research that I uh, found out about. And I was really stunned that 
guys in our own profession would be doing this for themselves. So I went ahead and researched that and found that $56 million and never disclosed it on their tax forms. So we have no way to know what these guys are doing with that money. And we also know that we've been subjects of research and that much of that research is self-promotional research for the American boards to be able to say, hey, look, what a great job we're doing. Um, but we don't know how it's done. We're not asked to be research subjects. Uh, we're only told it's done and we don't have uh, what the purpose of that research is. So they basically violate every um, uh, Belmont uh, requirement for research uh, when they have uh, do papers on this work because we don't actually ask to be research subjects. We have to be research subjects by contract. And that's, that's interesting. So they, they're, they're buying all kinds of stuff that doesn't seem like it would be crucial to researching or continuing the education, making sure that, you know, our physicians have the latest knowledge in front of them. And then I'm sure that there is a large lobbyist component, which baffles me again from a nonprofit standpoint, (laughs) because Yeah, the American Board of Internal Medicine uh, never disclosed that they lobby Congress. Um, They never did. How is that even possible? I I mean, how does the IRS even allow that to happen from a nonprofit standpoint? But I have no idea. The IRS lot, is out right? there. Uh, they, well, they're, they're a political organization, too. They probably have a lot of friends. Uh, these are guys highly connected. I mean, if you think about it, healthcare is our largest industry in America. So uh, who's going to want to you know, go after some rich old doctors? You know, uh, uh, we're not we're going to turn a, a, our eye another way. We don't want to know about this. The, the IRS um, has been woefully, uh, and, and they're understaffed. I mean, I, I don't think they would have all this. And this is, this is kind of in the realm of white collar crime, uh, you know, in my book. Um, and there's other bigger fish to fry for the, and they only have so many people and so much time to do. But when you're not putting down uh, the correct uh, date of origination of an organization, you're falsifying uh, the state in which it was uh, created in on the form. When you are not, uh, noting that uh, you have uh, rental income from a condominium that you basically are using for personal purposes. When you have a, um, uh, when you end up taking all of this money and you don't disclose that you're lobbying Congress as a 5013C organization, um, there's, there's a lot of problems on tax forms that need to be investigated in my view. Um, but, uh, you know, these guys are very savvy. They know a lot of loopholes. They have lots of big lawyers. Um, and, uh, you know, I am not a tax expert, so I am not in a position to state uh, that, that this is correct. But it, for the average Joe American to be able to try and find out what they're using our money for, the reality is we do know they lobby Congress. We do know the, and now the American Board of Medical Specialties is a 501c6, and they can lobby Congress. They are that under that rule, that's okay. But the American Board of Internal Medicine hired lobbyists uh, and uh, uh, their president and CEO was uh, sat on the president's advisors, uh, Council of Advisors for Science and Technology with President Obama uh, and was on the boards of Kaiser uh, Healthcare Systems uh, and Premier Incorporated, the largest uh, uh, procurement um, uh, group purchase organization for the nation's hospitals at the time. Uh, and that was all undisclosed to, and that really needs to be investigated in my view, because uh, here we have uh, a certification person 
who uh, has the ability to move markets and is colluding with uh, one of the largest purchasers and, and who orders equipment, physicians do. And so when you have that kind of uh, conflicts of interest going on, you've got some real problems that need investigation. And uh, honestly, I think that uh, that that president and CEO uh, made almost $10 million in her tenure, almost 10-year tenure with the American Board of Internal Medicine, uh, and was instrumental at, at uh, imposing many of the um, strongman tactics that went after doctors who tried to blow a whistle on this whole fiasco. Kind of stunning uh, revelations there. How does certification affect somebody who is in private practice and not even looking for employment, not even looking after to join hospitals. Um, I know it's kind of a, kind of a rare breed these days of the private practice physician, but we're seeing more and more Mm -hmm. of it grow within direct care. How do you see certification affecting anybody doing a private practice, not doing business with insurance? Uh, Well, I think uh, when you're direct, care. Um, You don't have to deal with this stuff, that's for sure. Um, But um, one of the issues uh, that uh, it does confront doctors who are in private practice is this malpractice issue. And if you get on a stand in the court of law, and and number one, first you have to get malpractice insurance. So that's going to be a challenge if you're not board certified. Secondly, uh, if you get in court and somebody says, oh, you're not board certified, doctor. Oh, what does that mean? And, and you're going to have somebody who's a, the plaintiff's attorney who is board certified. Um, you know, John Q. Public doesn't really know that. So if you have a jury trial, it's going to be an issue. Um, and uh, even though there, it's little more than a marking accolade. Um, and uh, honestly, uh, personally, I don't mind the initial certification. I think most of us were kind of like, look, okay, it, it serves as a benchmark, kind of like the bar exam for a lawyer. Mm-hmm. But after you've been in practice 10 years and, and you've seen things, you learn from your patients, you don't learn from a test. And uh, for people to think that they're going to be safe uh, with a doctor who takes a test every 10 years, um, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, most, most of the medic- really serious uh, fraud that has occurred most of the really serious injuries that have happened to repeated offens- uh, physician offenders that, you know, get published in Medscape every year, you know, the top 10 doctors who are dirt balls in America, you know, it's very important to make sure that we uh, disparage physicians in America because we want to make, get them replaced with cheaper nurse practitioners, but that's a whole nother podcast, which sure. we're working on. But anyway, you know, we have to understand that, that, uh, you know, there are bad actors out there, but the American Board of Internal Medicine does not go after them. They, they could care less. They, they've already got their money. They're out They're They're like, you know, peace out. We're, we're doing our own thing. So um, uh, they are not a safety quality regulator. Okay. About uh, and patient protection organization. They are not that, uh, but what they are is uh, basically a bureaucratic body uh, that does testing and uh, they like to believe that that testing is meaningful and it's not, it really isn't uh, not when it comes to the care of patients. And um, unfortunately we've been sold a bill of goods and even more concerning to me, a guy who's been doing this for a lot of years is that our entire, all the journals you read 
the Journal of the American Medical Association, you know, the Annals of the Internal Medicine, all those things, they're owned by these specialty boards that stand to make money from all this testing that goes on. So there are huge conflicts. Even the New England Journal of Medicine is owned by the Massachusetts Medical Society. Okay. And when I write an article criticizing this process, do you think it's going to get accepted? Of course not. Uh, absolutely not. Even if it's uh, scientifically valid, uh, or at least as valid as anything that they've published, um, it's not going to see the light of error, you know, that, that these guys uh, want to yeah. have published it. They're going to, yeah. they're going to steer this uh, propaganda the way they want to have it because it's a very lucrative money chain. Not only do they have monopoly on certification and really employment for physicians, but they have their own media arm. Right. That's precisely correct. So, so it's how tough are you- for, for Johnny Q public physician out there uh, to, to yeah. make a living. So what we're doing at Practicing Physicians yeah. of America. I love solutions. Is, I, love, uh, yeah. I love solutions to problems. <laughs> well, we, we first went to the AMA to try to uh, and, and actually got a resolution passed uh, to end maintenance of certification nationwide. But of course, that fell on deaf ears at the leadership of the AMA. Uh, and it went absolutely nowhere. We then went state by state to try to uh, get legislation passed at, at local levels in every state. Um, that we're having a legislation brought before the, uh, their uh, board uh, to try to end maintenance of certification uh, on a state-by-state basis. And a few states had limited success, but most states, uh, we met uh, lobbyists from the American Hospital Association and from the American Board of Medical Specialties, uh, who were all absolutely uh, ens- ensconced with this entire process. Uh, and of course, the American Hospital Association sits on the American Board of, uh, or, or I'm sorry, on the uh, Association uh, of Graduate Medical Education uh, with the American Board of Medical Specialties. They all kind of work together and the AMA, they all kind of work together uh, it, it, to make sure that these things go forward because they make a lot of money for this bureaucratic system in America. So well, that's uh, my, needless to yeah, say, just to jump in there, that's my question. What do the hospitals stand to bear, to stand to gain out of this? Well, they don't have to hire credentialing people anymore. What a deal. It's cheap. So okay. they're, they're saying, and I'm going to hire, if, I'm gonna right. hire a physician that has to spend tens of thousands of dollars every couple of years. Yeah, but he's gonna, that's off their sheet. Well, right. And, and uh, they say, well, look, uh, you know, you're not board certified. It's a great way to get rid of older physicians who might refuse to do this and replace them with cheaper employees. Right. So there's, you know, not everybody, uh, you have to show value in healthcare. Right. And unfortunately board certification uh, must show value to these organizations, uh, but it shows it in a way that is leveraged uh, and uh, controlling. So physicians who have, commonly been like herding cats, trying to get people to kind of toe the party line, unfortunately are very afraid to speak out nowadays because they could lose their employer. We didn't all used to be employed by hospital systems. Now the vast majority of us are. And the reality is if you don't comply with the rules that the hospital says you need to do, you're going to end up um, unemployed. And, uh, and why is that? Because you don't participate in maintenance of certification, dear doctor, and I'm sorry, um, you're going to have to stop practicing. So it's, it's as simple as that. It's, it's a power move. It, it allows uh, doctors to uh, become subordinates to uh, the business community. Um, and that is not necessarily always in the patient's best interest. 
I think that's just a ringing endorsement from hospitals themselves of why private practice needs to make a stage a huge comeback nowadays. And guess what? When you're in your own boss, you got to make up. I I think that's right. I think primary care uh, increasingly is going to go that way. I I think that um, the big hospitals uh, aren't too concerned about that because they see that as, as uh, because insurance companies are getting into this now, they're starting to hire people and they get nurse practitioners. We got Walmart and CBS, all of whom, um, you know, are hiring nurse practitioners because shucks they can do. And with two years of training, what a doctor can do, who's been training for 15 <laughs> well, so, years. Well, so I mean, yeah, so they, we they laugh about that, but, but the reality is this is what's being sold to the public and yeah, the public exactly. uh, is absolutely uh, in need of uh, care. Um, that they, they're not going to complain. They're like, somebody's looking at me and looking under the, under the hood and making sure that me or my child gets cared for. That's all I care about. And unfortunately the reality is, is that uh, a lot of care uh, quality has suffered as a result of all of these shenanigans that have gone on uh, and continue to do so. But um, Mm -hmm. you know, we have to keep our eyes on the ball. Finally, the last thing that we, we did after all these other avenues failed um, is um, uh, we learned of a lot of people who've been hurt. Uh, Practicing Physicians of America put out a huge survey to over 7,000 physicians to find out how much harm has been caused by board certification. And that survey helped, um, helped us identify the problems that were involved with this. Um, and uh, because of all the political upheaval that had occurred, we went ahead and um, uh, got together and said, we're going to support the guys who um, might want to bring legal action against the American Board of Internal Medicine. So we created a GoFundMe page. And that GoFundMe page has already raised over $400,000 uh, in support of the uh, of four interns who uh, uh, sued uh, the American Board of Internal Medicine in uh, the Third Federal District Court of uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, for antitrust, racketeering, and unjust enrichment claims. So um, those are big, that's a big deal. Um, the original, uh, complaint, uh, was dismissed, uh, by a judge who, uh, I think it was his last ruling before he retired, uh, and really was, uh, dismissed without really looking at the claims. And he basically must've thought board certification was, uh, fait accompli. And so, uh, said, sided with the defendants, the American board of internal medicine, uh, and dismissed that case. So it went up to the appellate level and currently is being reviewed by the appellate court um, for kind of an improper judgment uh, based on and a, a ruling. Uh, the, the case that uh, we're hoping that that case will um, uh, be sent back to the district court uh, for discovery. And if, uh, if that happens, I think that we'll, uh, we'll see some movement uh, that suddenly this may not be such a great idea after all. Um, and that's all we can hope for at this point. Um, I, I am quite certain that they're not going to just roll over and, you know, if it goes to discovery to say, oh, gee whiz, yeah, sure. Um, you know, let's, let's settle this case. They're not going to settle. There's no way it's too much money involved, uh, and too much on the line for these organizations. So, um, this is a big case, you know, it, it remains to be seen whether it will move forward. Uh, but when you have all these other things like the tax fraud and, you know, or at least the tax discrepancies, I guess I should call them because they haven't been called fraud yet. But, you know, the tax form discrepancies are pretty significant in this case. The, the fact that all this money was funneled and doctors weren't aware of it, this research that goes on doctors that we don't know about, uh, those are all big issues. 
uh, medicine's better than this. We need to be, um, you know, uh, have a little higher standard. Uh, we talk about quality. Uh, this isn't quality. Uh, this is uh, bureaucracy, and uh, it's a money-making scheme. And uh, the scheme has been exposed thanks to the internet in large part. And we're working hard to try and get things corrected for our profession. That's great to hear. And, you know, anything we can do to show that physicians are not commoditized and they're not every white coat and somebody with a stethoscope around their neck, like you mentioned earlier, are going to be the same here. And really, when I look at this as you're taking the shackles off of great doctors, letting them take care of people the best way that they know how without all these stipulations and, and, and hurdles and hoops to jump through, um, it's got to be exhausting from a physician standpoint and just put that on the list of things that drive doctors nuts and eventually either drive them to leave their career, leave their calling as they've, they've come. Or, you know, sadly, uh, some of them choose to just take their life if they can't be a doctor anymore. And we see that in suicide rates ticking up because all these little things band together and right. drive some of our best and brightest in the community out of, their life purpose. So yeah, keep up the good fight. If anybody's looking for more information, what's the best way to get a hold of you or learn more? Uh, well, I, I'm on Twitter at uh, Dr. Wes, uh, at Dr. Wes, which is D-O-C-T-O-R-W-E-S. That's probably the fastest way to uh, get in touch with me. Um, I would go to the practicingphysician.org website. Um, and uh, that's another place that you can contact us uh, if you want more information on the ABIM lawsuit, you can go to abimlawsuit.com uh, and all of the uh, legal documents and things will be uh, there. There's also one for the apbnlawsuit.com uh, for the American Psychiatry and Neurology uh, Board lawsuit and the American Board of Radiology has the abrlawsuit.com. So all of those are individual lawsuits. Uh, that uh, people can go learn more about uh, these. But, uh, and of course, finally, our GoFundMe page, uh, which is gofundme.com slash practicing-physician-of-America website uh, is also out there. And my blog at the uh, Dr. West blog, you can just Google that and I'll pop up. And uh, I have uh, years of documentation of what's been going on with these groups. Uh, over. I've been working on this for over six and a half years. Um, and feel quite strongly that we need to do better as a, as a profession uh, in this regard um, and, you know, really uh, have some uh, our, our day in court so that we can actually be heard as to what has transpired over these years. Uh, I think we've got a long way to go yet before, um, you know, we've got a lot of conflicts of interest here that need to be uh, brought forth and wrestle with. So it's going to be a complicated long-term uh, battle, but I think it's worth fighting. Yeah, keep up the good fight and shining a lot of light into some of those dark crevices of healthcare is going to help all of us uh, across all 50 states here. So, Dr. Wes Fisher, I appreciate you joining us here on Healthcare Americana. And I'm thrilled that um, you're up at the University of Chicago uh, Med School helping sculpt the next generation of physicians and physician leaders to hopefully take up this banner and say, you know what, this isn't what we signed up for. We're going to go and make medicine back into what we wanted to, to be and, and why we became doctors in the first place. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate the opportunity. A big thank you to Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro for editing and Melissa Turpin for managing. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. This is Healthcare Americana. Thanks for listening. 
Health insurance premiums are rising faster than actual medical costs. And employers everywhere are struggling to keep their heads above water and take care of their amazing team. Most people will never meet their deductible in a given year. So shouldn't there be an alternative to health insurance for people who don't really need it? At Custom Benefit Solutions, we build better benefit solutions by pairing local, direct primary care options with affordable medical cost sharing plans. This creates affordable options for America's small businesses. These companies are able to save money and provide an actual primary care doctor that'll take care of your employees and their families. Employees enjoy getting the care they deserve without struggling with confusing co-pays or deductibles. Want to learn more? Go to custombenefits.org and talk to a team member today. Custom Benefits Solutions. We solve for care. At Green Imaging, we provide diagnostic imaging procedures that include MRIs, CT scans, and x-rays for half of the average price in a health plan. Most people don't realize that the most expensive place to get an MRI is right down the hall from the prescribing doctor. This is because 70% of doctors are now employed or subsidized by our hospital systems. When we get an imaging exam at a hospital-owned imaging facility, the cost of care is three to seven times more expensive than it is at an independent imaging facility. There is a better choice that can save you up to 65% or more. That choice is green imaging. In most hospitals, there are 16 administrators for every single doctor. This creates an unnecessary burden on the price tag. By removing this excess, Green Imaging provides diagnostic services typically at one-third of the price or less. Check us out at greenimaging.net. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Healthcare can be complex. If you're managing a chronic or life-threatening illness, Patients Rising is here for you. We built the Patients Rising Concierge to help you navigate stressful health decisions and get the support you deserve. You will find personalized support by calling, emailing, or visiting our website. Our team is standing by to help with your unique situation. Find the help you need today at patientsrisingconcierge.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.